why we harvest water because sometimes water is not available at the right time and at the right place especially in this uh, uh, let, it, let me call it this uh, savanna climate or semi-arid climate where they experience seasonal rainfalls where you have a lot of water for a couple of months could be three up to five six months but then for the rest you don't have kind of permanent water source so the people try to harvest what comes during the rainy season to use it during the dry season. What we see is that a lot of the rainfall flows off the, the plot before it can be utilized by, by for instance, uh, farmers. And uh, I think it is very important that we try to, to capture more of the rainfall on the land where it falls and see to maximize the amount that can be stored in the soil moisture. And that is where I think a lot of gains can still be made in, in many parts of the world. These are some of the key ideas behind the concept and practices of water harvesting, an ancient yet crucial technique to make productive use of the water resources in regions experiencing water scarcity. Countries like Sudan, Ethiopia, Zambia, and many other African countries. For thousands of years, people have been benefiting from collecting, storing, and making productive use of the rain, or the water flows for their crops, their animals, or for drinking. This smart idea still has all its beauty in today's context, and I am very pleased to have a chance to talk to two senior experts in this field. Welcome to the Water Channel Podcast a series of conversations on water, food, agriculture, and environmental sustainability. We feature stories and talks that reflect our present and are shaping our future. This is Long Huang from Meta Meta. My great pleasure to host our podcast today. I am sitting with Dr. Yassir Mohamed, the Director General of the Hydraulics Research Center, HRC Sudan. And I'm also joined by Professor Peter van der Zach, Professor of Integrated Water Resources Management at IHE Delft Institute for Water Education. Thank you very much and my warm welcome to you both. To start our conversation, I would like to talk about the challenge we are addressing here. Like Yassir just mentioned, we harvest water because we do not have enough. Not enough water for irrigating our crops, not enough for our animals, like in Ethiopia or Sudan, or not enough for our domestic uses. Dr. Yassir, you just came from Sudan, and I'm sure you have some concrete stories of what water scarcity actually means. Could you please share one of those examples with our audience? To me, it's a clear example. If you, those young girls fetching for water, I mean, uh, either on food or on their donkeys for hours, for example, two hours, three hours, to get a bucket of water and come back home, that to me is a uh, the real picture of water scarcity, being physical or being technical or being financial, but I, I, I can see the impacts, what it, it completely changed the, the, the livelihood of the people, I mean, the society, everything. That's what does it mean, water scarcity for me? Yeah, indeed. Lack of water resources can really damage people's livelihood and their well-being. Thank you very much, Yasir. I'm turning now to uh, Peter, perhaps with uh, another anecdote on how harvesting water helped. Now, I, I'm always impressed by an example that 
I learned to know through a PhD student of mine, Tesfai Gabriel Mikhail, in the, in the Tigray area in northern uh, Ethiopia, in the Tekeza River, where uh, in the last 20 or so years, springs dried up and the erosion increased. And then through a large program from the government of Ethiopia, also supported by the World Food Program and others, uh, local people <coughs> started to invest with their hands in, in improving, uh, digging buns along the, the slopes of the hills and uh, planting uh, small trees uh, to ensure that more of the rainfall would infiltrate. And after perhaps 10 years of investments, it could be seen that springs that had dried up started to flow again. And that was simply due to uh, more water of the rain infiltrating, which gave more vegetation, but also enhanced the, the infiltration and the recharge of groundwater. So it had a double benefit. But it cost a lot of work, but then it has a, had a huge impact and an ecologically and socially very benign impact. That is a beautiful case to me, because it shows that active actions can really turn the tide and deliver tangible changes to the people. Talking of changes, I feel very special today that we have the opportunity to sit with two senior experts with very respectable and long career tracks on water, in research, but also in operational water management and politics. If you reflect on the past years, what changes are remarkable regarding water scarcity? I mean, how the intensity has been changing and what factors are causing these changes? Okay maybe different angles i mean if you if you see it from the, the climate as a driver and now has been proven by a number of studies a number of models that the intensity of the dry spells that become more intense as well as the flood events so that is also you can see it in in, in real life i mean uh, you see uh, very severe droughts and very intense floods but if you see it with, the, with regard to the resilience of the communities to, to water scarcity issues, to me, in general now, people seem a bit more resilient compared to, say, the 70s or 80s. Because I, I remember uh, in the 80s when there was a drought in the Sahelian region of Africa from Ethiopia to West Africa, Senegal, millions of people died. Now, the resilience seems to be better, relatively much better, because you can see conflicts, you can see uh, suffering, but not to, not to the level of many people uh, lost their lives or a huge number of livestock. So maybe I don't have a statistics, exact statistics, but in general, I can see relatively better resilience now. But still the gap is too huge of what can be done and what is actually uh, happening on the ground to enhance the resilience of people again it's this increasing kind of uh, shocks drought shocks so a lot can be done to improve the resilience uh, in different ways and for you peter what is your uh, impression now I, I find it interesting what uh, yasir is uh, saying but 
if I remember well, in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, people like the agricultural extension worker were positions of high esteem. And they were important in local villages to, to support uh, local farmers. And during the 90s, etc., that position eroded tremendously because governments didn't provide sufficient support to those type of uh, agricultural extension officers. And that, I, I, I think, was a very sad uh, development. And now there are efforts to revive that, uh, that again. But farmers are oftentimes have been left behind in a way and had to sort out the, the problems themselves. And, uh, and I think that is not entirely fair. Most of the countries that I know, also of the so-called developed uh, countries, uh, small farmers have always been receiving support from governments to enhance uh, their production and to contribute to the development uh, of, of countries. And that has, in the 1990s, I think, uh, not happened sufficiently in many parts of the world. And that has, uh, that has to change, and it is hopefully also changing a bit. And it is urgent because of climate variability and change, and also of population growth that is at the same time happening. Thank you, Peter. So far we talked quite a bit about the key idea of water harvesting and about water scarcity as the main motivation to practice water harvesting. Now I would like to take a closer look and invite you to share more in details about the specific activities that we can implement to harvest the water. Perhaps uh, to start with uh, Mr. Yassir. There are different types of water harvesting. Uh, rooftop water harvesting and as Peter was mentioning to also soil moisture to enrich the soil moisture not to let it uh, but to me coming from this semi-arid kind of zone where you have rainfall of like 200-400 millimeter uh, what's always in my mind is this surface runoff harvesting I mean when it rains there is some runoff in these small seasonal rivers or ephemeral rivers or small, we call them in some places they call them wadis. So you see a flow of a couple of days or a couple of hours, maybe three, four times a year, and then nothing. If you can harvest that surface runoff by pond, water pond, locally in, in Sudan they call it hafir, or if you make a small dam, you store some water and let uh, high flood to pass by. That is more kind of what, what I really know, and that's my experience. And this is, you can see it in this Sahelian region from, from Ethiopia, and Eritrea, Sudan, Chad, Mali, Niger, up to Senegal in the a region of rainfall, like 200 millimeter in the north, maybe 607 millimeter in the south. And this region is very rich with, with pasture. And there is this nomadic people who are living here, and they have this seasonal movement to the north-south, according to the rain. What is that means? There is a lot of pasture there, but the main constraint always is the drinking water. And sometimes you find also some conflicts because of competition about these water ponds. And we have seen, in, in, for example, I know in my country, it was one of the reasons for this uh, 
atrocities in, in Darfur because some people, they, they just concentrate around some water ponds and that triggers some conflict between them, between the herders and the farmers. And of course, I mean, politics also played an important role, but the natural, the competition over these natural resources, very precisely uh, this water during the dry season is to me, if it can be harvested, it can really solve a lot of problems. So from all the interesting activities I hear from you, it seems to me that these uh, activities and techniques are not new. They have been practiced by locals for many years. And so the question is, are we doing anything differently, say, in comparison to the traditional practices of the farmers? Uh, you are very much correct. And this is very, <laughs> it's very good questions. I mean, we always ask ourselves, I mean, what, what new we are bringing. For example, if you go to, to a village, sometimes they have this, locally we call it nefir, when all the village come and dig the water pond or do the harvest. But with this population growth and with this also more variability, it seems to be the challenge against the normal people is beyond their capacity. And also Peter mentioned another dimension of this, uh, I mean, this big divide between the North and South, I mean, and uh, governments, they are very little support local communities there. So what, what you want is that their local knowledge with the support from outside, from outside it could be support from the government. For example, I can give one example. The government can bring machines, these bulldozers and these buckling machines to, to make the pond. But who will operate this pond? Who will maintain it? The government cannot maintain it. So you need their knowledge, their indigenous knowledge, their local commitment, so that they can manage it. I mean, they can operate, they can do the maintenance, they can do the repairing. And so I, I'm not saying that we are bringing new ideas for them. No, I, I'm saying we are complementing their capacity by by the capacity of governments or, or other organizations, acknowledging their know-how in managing their, their, their water harvesting for, for, for centuries. The locals themselves, because of, I mean, uh, they have the knowledge of this water harvesting. And it depends on the rainfall. For example, if you go to the zone of rainfall like 200, 300 millimeter, you will see that they are making these terraces, what they call it in, in some places. I mean, to let more water goes to, to the soil than move as a runoff to enhance their rain-fed crop production. And in the same kind of climate zone, if you see uh, these natural landscapes, I mean, for, for, for grazing, these are huge, these are, uh, I mean, millions of square kilometers. There, the limitation is, is not the pasture itself, because that was natural. The limitation is, as I said, the limitation will be the drinking water supply itself for maybe six months or nine months. And there, what you want to, uh, to store this runoff or to harvest this runoff during the rainy season so that they can use it during the dry season to make use of the already available pasture in the, in the natural landscape. This can make a, 
a big huge impact i remember one story we were we were traveling in the west part of sudan and we went to a, a, a village and the people in the village they, they, they have sheep they said now they control the birth of the sheep to give once a year and they were saying if they have a kind of water supply this water harvesting they will allow to ha they will allow their sheep to have two birds a year that will double their number of sheep and they could convince us because they showed us uh, there is huge uh, pasture stand but the main limitation was uh, was the water supply so uh, my point is that the local people they are really aware of of their needs in some cases they need support but it's very important not to make it like top-down kind of support to to really acknowledge their needs how they want to do it and try to to help them according to their needs yes i very much agree with that um and peter from my understanding of your interests, uh, there is also another element to water harvesting that you have done a lot of research on. Could you please share some thoughts on water harvesting in relation to the landscape? Yeah. So, and that is a bit also in connection to your previous question. Um, it is more interesting for donors and outside actors oftentimes to, to focus on the end solution for instance, to build a large dam or so to, to, and I even use the word harvest, to harvest the water from the river. Now, we, in former times, we didn't call this harvesting, we, just, we, we simply called it damming up the river. <laughs> but, and then to, to, to develop, for instance, an irrigation scheme. But that is, I would call it an end of pipe solution, and it would be much better to first uh, focus on what I said before, on on the area where the rainfall drops fall onto the soil and to ensure that that is the most efficient use. And the, the storage that nature has given us in the this, in this unsaturated zone of the soil, the first meter of the soil, is critically important also for a, a, a smallholder farmer because that store, that water can be stored in the soil, uh, provides the means to bridge the dry spells during the dry season. But then you have to care for the soil and you have to make sure that there is sufficient organic material in the soil and that there is less erosion. And that requires that each square meter is taken care of. And that is not so very attractive for external donors because it's so tedious, because then you have to cater for so many interventions and how to organize this. And that is what I have seen is going oftentimes wrong. And therefore, we go for the end of pipe solutions, whereas the real solution lies in first start, where we have to start, namely where the rainfall drops on the soil. And that requires to harvest, or to, to appeal to the local knowledge, but what already was mentioned by Yassir and you, uh, on how to better uh, invest in soil and water conservation measures and for instance to see what type of uh, soil conservation measure and, and tillage measures are best suited for the particular soil and slope that in a given situation exists and that 
knowledge is oftentimes not sufficiently uh, available and there's too little experimentation going on at the local scale to improve that. Although if you would walk through a, a landscape in a, in a, in a semi-arid or arid area, you will always find farmers, female or male, who, have, who are better farmers than others and who have interesting insights on how they made their land better than, uh, than, than you would have expected. And we can, uh, we can better make use of that type of experimentation together with modern uh, uh, knowledge to, to, uh, to improve the situation. And if we can do that, then we can enhance the, the natural store of, uh, of, uh, of water in the unsaturated zone. And with, in so doing, we can increase the, the, the production, the agricultural production, starting with the rain-fed rain agriculture. And if we can make that change, then we can have a huge impact in Africa, for instance, yeah. at much lower cost than focusing only on irrigation. Thank you very much. What I take from the interesting conversation so far is that by catching the surface or subsurface flows or by preserving and enhancing the capacity of the soil to hold water and moisture, we can win over water scarcity. But uh, also at the same time, water harvesting is not a straightforward, simple undertaking. We are talking about landscape interventions, which I suppose ask for a sort of a distributed approach to work closely with many people on the ground, rather than investing on a few infrastructures here and there. What is your take on this, uh, Peter? Now, there's, there's two aspects that I would like to mention, because um, in the this arid to semi-arid areas, uh, it will require lots of local level investments that people themselves can make if they are supported by, for instance, food for work type of uh, arrangements um, coupled with support to farmers of what on the, the type of soil quality of their land because that is a, an aspect that is sometimes not well understood also by farmers they know that their, their soil is is perhaps not fertile enough but what type of elements are particularly missing is sometimes not known so that is for the semi-arid to arid zones, which requires support to farms at that level. But at where the areas are a bit receiving a bit more rainfall, what we have seen also in certain other parts of Ethiopia, um, soil and water conservation also require coordination at the landscape level because of the evacuation in a safe way of floodwaters during storm events. We know of the huge uh, erosion that can uh, occur when uh, farmers intervene in the landscape and where, when flows of water are concentrated. And at that level, uh, if, if that happens, the only way to solve this is to have a, a collective approach to, to, to make a good architecture of the of the landscape and to make sure that uh, that everybody benefits and takes the needs of each other into account and that is sometimes miss, uh, missing and that is uh, actually uh, i see as a as a pity so soil and water conservation and water harvesting 
if there's little rainfall, it's, it's relatively easy and can be done by individual farmers. But if the rainfall is a bit higher and in, during intense storm events, there is a collective action uh, challenge that is not an easy one. And it requires inter intervention by people who really understand uh, uh, these type of things to, uh, to together with farmers and, and people living in the landscape to make a design of how to where to, to locate, for instance, the drains and, and where to locate the, the buns and, and, and all these type of uh, inf infrastructure. And uh, Mr. Yashir, what is your experience with uh, implementing water harvesting in Sudan? You see, there is two types of approaches or two schools. One school is that, okay, government should do everything. And another school, they say, no, no, it's that local communities should do everything. And the, the experience I have from Sudan is that, for example, our government, like six years ago, they had very ambitious water harvesting program. They invested $1 billion to build all these water harvesting in, in, in rural areas. And they said, okay, we build it. We build a small dam or a water pond and we leave it, we go, because that is our responsibility. Either they, they hand it over to the local government, eh? municipalities or local, uh, they, they call it state governments. And what happens that they, after three years or I think four years, they went back to evaluate the impact of the water harvesting schemes and they found that more than 50% are not fully operational. Why? Because either they made it in the wrong place or uh, some people came and installed the pump which pumps the water from the pond to, to, to the livestock or and it was very disappointing experience. At the same time there were few bright spots very successful I mean we went to a place where they had this water pond and then they had very kind of nominal fees water fees to to, to cover the cost of the of the pumps, spare parts and fuel. And from the extra money they received, they built a class in the, in the, the school. There is a village, they, they have a school there. They built two classes there and they built small clinics. So we ask ourselves, I mean, how this becomes successful and, uh, and the rest were not successful. And we really uh, learned a lot from them and to me what is important is how to upscale these successful bright spots to other places rather than rather than say okay uh, uh, this is the format which will solve the water harvesting everywhere because the context differs from place to place yes there is some commonalities but it is very important to to have this this is strong partnership, genuine partnership from the government on one side and from the community on the other side, starting from the very beginning, from the need assessment, I mean. Sometimes the local communities, they don't accept to build for them water harvesting. They say, no, no, no. Yes, we need water. Yes, we know. But if you build a, a well here, it will attract others to come here and they will compete with us. So it's very important all these steps right from the beginning to be done jointly, government support with the local communities, 
from the need assessment, how to design it, and, and then how to maintain it. That's the most important. I mean, government cannot reach everywhere. So you need these local communities. And talking of maintaining and keeping water harvesting sustainable, I would like to take a forward-looking perspective and invite you to share some thoughts on so what is next. My last question to you is, from the experience so far, what are the important elements of water harvesting that we need to focus on future investments? The first, my first inclination would be, ah, we have to do more research at the farmer level. But sometimes we have to perhaps target not the farmers, but uh, the policy makers and the development banks. And, and here I, I'm not sure where we should focus, but it would also be interesting to focus perhaps on, on the, the policy level and the, and the development banks, because as I said before, some of the interventions with soil and water harvesting are distributed, as you indicated also, meaning there, are, there is a need for many very small investments at the spatial, spatially distributed level. And that is sometimes for governments and for banks difficult to fund. It is much easier to have one big dam and say, okay, this is the dam, we hire a, con a contractor and this is the loan and, and then we can finish the dam and we can ribbon cut it and the president can, can put a ni nice plug with his name on it. And that is maybe the wrong investment. And, and that type of uh, understanding that other types of interventions may sometimes be better for the farmers and for the, for the environment and, and, and for social injustice um, is perhaps also required. And Mr. Yassir, what are your thoughts on this matter? To me, someone coming from those areas where we, we have witnessed what a lot kind of challenges. We don't need to reinvent uh, the wheel. I mean, uh, I mean, there is a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience on water harvesting now, either by governments or programs. What is important is we have to figure out where are the challenges exactly is, where are the problems. And to my experience, for at least in Sudan and in Ethiopia and maybe also some other Sahelian countries, the challenge remains with how to how to maintain a water harvesting scheme, being a, a pond or being a small dams. I mean, how to operate, how to do the maintenance. Sometimes it's very cheap if you do preventive maintenance in the dry season. For example, you do some fixing or you remove some trees. If you don't do it, maybe a high flood come and will wash out the, the pond. You end up with nothing. But these very small kind of operational issues are very crucial to, to consider and to see how to make it sustainable. And in that, you, you need this kind of innovative partnership between, between governments or between donors and between the, the, the beneficiaries themselves. And that should be done right from from the beginning not okay not after you build it and then you say you ask them to come to to discuss how to maintain it no right from the start indeed having the right thematic focus and effective engagements with the beneficiaries 
all the way from problem definition to implementation and maintenance would be essential. These are some very important lessons learned and I am convinced that they will be useful for doing water harvesting even better. I would like to conclude our conversation today with these notes and I thank you all very much for taking the time and share your ideas. Also, I would like to send a few words of thanks to our audience on the Water Channel. We hope you enjoy and find this episode useful and inspiring. We wish you all the best and see you next time.